1st Peter. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hearts on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like gra grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Let's pray and we'll get into this. Jesus, help us tonight, I pray. As we've already mentioned, um, some of us are feeling under the weather from a great but long weekend. We've got other distractions on our minds. And uh, it is always our hunger and our thirst and our desire for you to feed us. Peter talks about just after this longing for pure spiritual milk that we might grow. Would you feed us that milk tonight through your word? Would you grow us? Would you help us know who we are and who you are that we might be ourselves? We pray this uh, in your name, amen. Well, there are some jobs out there that are much more than jobs. They're much more than jobs. They're more like callings because they're not things that you clock in or clock out of. It's not a nine to five. It's almost an identity. It's kind of who you are. A couple of examples. You're not just a doctor when you're in your office seeing patients. You're a doctor all the time. That's why, is there a doctor on the plane as a thing? You're always on call. Um, a friend of ours was, a, was our pediatrician. She used to go to Good Shepherd, and um, she would joke with us about all the parents that would have, she would have a line of parents at her every Sunday morning. What's up with this rash? Or my kid was up all night coughing. What do you think it is? She was always on call. You're not just a cop when you're on duty and have your uniform on. You're, you're always a cop. Even on your day off, you're supposed to be someone who runs toward danger to protect other people from danger, right? So we've all heard stories of tragedies or mass shootings where there was a military veteran or a cop there who was very clear about who they were, and even though they weren't on duty, even though they weren't active duty, they ran towards danger for the sake of other people. It's a calling. It's not a job. Pastors. If you know a pastor, you know uh, they're not just a pastor on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, but all the time, kind of whenever the phone rings. Somebody's in the hospital at 5 a.m., they're in the hospital. Somebody loses a loved one over the weekend, they're in that living room or at the funeral home that weekend. A pastor friend of mine told me a story a while back of a day that he was leaving a restaurant, 
And on his way to his car, he saw a woman sitting on the curb sobbing. And he felt that instinct kick in. And he turned around and walked back over and just a few feet away from her, just sat down on the curb. And after a while, he said, I'm a pastor. I don't know what happened to you, but I'm so, so sorry that it's had this effect on you. If it wouldn't be weird, could I pray for you? And she allowed him to. It's not a job. It's a calling. You don't clock in and clock out of that. Holiness, it's not a job. It's not an occasional pursuit for the Christian. It's your vocation. It's your calling. It's your status. Holiness, it's our life. It's our life's pursuit. It's what our lives are about. It's what your life is about if you are in Jesus. So when you're asleep, you're holy. When you're awake, you're holy. When you're in a good mood, you're holy. And when you're in a bad mood, you're still holy. When you're depressed, when your faith is weak, you're holy. When you feel like your faith is strong and life's going like you want, you're holy. Spatially speaking, Holy really just means near. If I was going to holy something or sanctify something, consecrate something, I'd be pulling it closer to me. Holiness really means nearness. And God makes people holy. People don't make people holy. Remember last week, if you were here with Joshua the high priest? God cleaned him. God made him holy. God loved him. God sent him back out. Joshua didn't clean himself. So God makes us holy. God draws us near to himself. Um, And so you could put it this way. Holiness or nearness to God is, is something received like a gift, not achieved like a trophy. Holiness is received like a gift not achieved like a trophy. Let's add something to that. But this holiness, it's, it's also kind of like a new status that you possess when you become alive in Jesus, when with your weak little faith, you set it on a strong Redeemer Jesus. And you say, I can't do this. I can't measure up. I can't clean myself. I'm not holy, but you are, and you say you make people holy, so make me holy. That's what becoming a Christian really is, when God responds to your hunger and your need. and says, sure, I'll make you holy. Well, when he makes you holy, there's also kind of a new status, and this new status takes a while for your head to wrap around, for you to kind of grow into that pair of shoes. It's your status. You're holy now but it also takes a while to grow into it, to pursue it, to practice it. So let me say it in biblical terms, and let me give you an illustration. A holy God, holies, the verb, holies, makes you holy, and the logical outcome is be holy. A holy God holied you, made you holy, supernaturally transformed you, and now you are holy, So, what other possible outcome is there than to be holy? To live 
holy, to pursue holiness, to grow into holiness, to spend your life wrapping your head around your holiness, which you have received. Not a holiness you're trying to achieve, that you've received and are now trying to grow into. Think about it like this. Um, Charlotte, George, and Louis are 100% royals right now. Does it look like they've wrapped their head around their new status yet? Doesn't appear so. But William and Kate know that they are. And William and Kate are going to raise them to more and more grow into the status that they already possess, a royalty that's already theirs, a gift you could say that they received, they were born into. But now they've got to learn it. Now they've got to grow into it. Now their self-perception has to catch up to their status. Or take those earlier examples I gave you, the new cop on the beat. You're the new cop. But do you have the sixth sense that a veteran cop has? Can you walk into a convenience store and just by the body language of the other people in there know that something's up and quietly, you know, go get a weapon from your car to protect people? Are you that honed? Are you that trained? You're a cop, but are you really a cop? Have you fully grown into a status you already possess? So here's the thing, Christian. You are holy. You are holy. And did you know that Scripture doesn't really refer to you or label you or call you a Christian? Scripture does have the word Christian in it. It's in the New Testament three times maybe. But it was never, never a label, never a word that God applies to you. It was a term that outsiders, it was a term of mockery that outsiders applied to Christians. They were making fun of them. So God doesn't call you a Christian. Do you know what God calls you? Do you know what words appear throughout the scriptures? Saint. You're a saint. If you're in Jesus, when you've had a bad week, you're a saint. When you have fallen back into sin patterns, you're a saint. When you're asleep, you're a saint. When you're pursuing him and it seems well, you're a saint. When you're off mission and this is the first time you've been back at something like this in years because you've been drifting. If you're in Jesus, you're a saint. Listen to this. Listen to how, just a few examples. Listen to how scripture talks about God's people. To the church of God in Corinth. If you don't know that city, the church in Corinth was a dumpster fire of immorality, of dysfunction, of tribalism. You would call it a failed church, a toxic church. To the saints of God in Corinth. Those sanctified in Christ Jesus, those made holy in Jesus Christ, called to be saints. That's Paul's opening letter. Philippians, to the saints in Philippi. Ephesians, to the saints in Ephesus. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be made holy before him. Why did God choose you? Why did God give you new birth? Why did God resurrect you? That you would be holy. It's your destiny. It's your calling. Your identity. 
It's what your life is about. It's not an occasional pursuit. It's who you are. Sometimes, some Wednesdays, I'll be in there, you know, working on the sermon, and some folks will come up to start setting stuff up. Justin or Zach or Harrison will get here a little bit early, and I'll, be, I'll, I'll, I'll call from across the room. He's like, what's up, brother? When my kids ever hear me saying that, they're like, are, is that your brother? And I was like, yeah, that's my brother. I knew uh, of a pastor one time who, he didn't say, what's up, brother? He said, son of God. Sometimes he would say, saint. Maybe you giggle a little bit inside. It sounds cheesy. It sounds kind of cute in a, in a bad way. But why do we giggle? I feel the internal giggle. Why, why, do we, why does that feel cheesy to us? It's what you are. You are a son of the living God. You're a daughter of the living God. Why is it cheesy when someone refers to you that way? Why do we giggle when someone calls you what you are? A saint. Set apart. Different than everybody else in the world. I would imagine, uh, joking aside, I mean, joking aside, I would imagine if, if we more often referred to each other that way, we would have less trouble internalizing and embracing and living out of this identity, right? This is who we are, and this is how Jesus thinks of you. Listen to these things. Listen to these things. I hope they get into you. I pray that they get into your heart tonight. Jesus takes you seriously. God respects who he's made you to be. God respects your holy calling. He's excited about the holy path that he's blazed for your life. Do you take you seriously? Do you respect his calling on your life? Or do you kind of just giggle and go about your life? Do you respect who you are in Jesus? Do you think of yourself this way? When you look in the mirror and have those moments, they're rare, but those moments when you're like looking in the mirror into your soul and you're wondering, who am I? Who is looking back at me in the mirror? Does I am holy ever enter your mind? I am the Lord's. I'm a saint. Especially when you look in the mirror and you say, I'm garbage. I look like trash. I'm worthless. Who's naming you? Who's labeling you? The person looking back at you in that mirror is a saint of the living God. Okay, so thinking of yourself this way, looking in the mirror and having that thought is really, really hard, right? I love what Rankin Wilburn says. He says, to be yourself on purpose, that's one of the hardest things. To be yourself on purpose. That's one of the hardest things. So to be yourself intentionally, thoughtfully, authentically takes effort, takes thought, takes a memory, takes an alert mind. 
takes sobriety. And it's not just that Rankin Wilburn says that it's really hard. Peter says it's really hard too. Look at verse 13. Look down at your passage. What Peter is really saying is a little bit diluted or lost in the length of his sentence. So I'm going to read you his sentence and we're going to shorten it up. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Okay, that's the long version. Here's the short version. Wake up. Sober up. Minds that are alert. Wake up. You're groggy. You're cloudy-minded. Sober up. You're disoriented. You're under the influence of some other word than this life-giving word that endures forever. That's why our cloudiness of mind, our disoriented spirit, our disoriented heart, that's why it's hard for the gospel to matter more to us and for it to affect our living. Does that make sense? We're cloudy about not just who we are, holy and saints. We're cloudy about who God is to us. We forget it. And it's disorienting us. Um, I was thinking about this. And I, I, I found this paradox to be true in my life. I think it's true of everybody's life. Bodily, so bodily speaking, our default is sober. And you have to go drink a lot to become drunk right? But it's the reverse spiritually. As, as, as broken spiritual people still living in a broken world, as exiles, as resident aliens under the pressures of exile, it's the reverse. Spiritually, our default is drunk and cloudy-minded and disoriented and forgetful, and we have to drink a lot to become sober. So that one more time to get you on board before we build on this. Bodily Our default is sobriety. We have to drink a lot to become drunk. Spiritually, I think our default is drunkenness, and we've got to drink a lot to become sober, clear-minded, alert, aware of who we are in Jesus right now. What's the cloudiness and the disorientation and the forgetfulness feel like uh, in normal life? I bet it's already making sense to you. You can probably already feel But distractions that come in the thousands, our phones, that just always, we never have to think a thought more than about three milliseconds because I can pick up my phone and deaden that thought again or turn to something screaming at me around me. Uh, Maybe we've developed ruts and habits of, of, of sermons or Bible studies kind of just glancing right off your heart. Your, your, your brain is even trained to just kind of pay attention for about 25 or 30 minutes, and then brain goes back into some other mode. And whatever happened in that 20 or 30 minutes never makes it out of the room, into your head, into your heart, into your life. That's the cloudiness, the disorientation, the drunkenness. Maybe it's a lack of stillness or silence in our lives. Maybe it's spiritual laziness. Maybe we don't know what the cause of it is, but it's there. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, the moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes and plans for the day rush at you like wild animals. It happened to me this morning. First waking thought. All these things running at me. Thoughts. What I got to do. What I'm behind in. Where I got to be. 
So he says the first job of each morning consists in shoving them all back and in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. He's talking about getting reoriented. So how do we wake up? How do we sober up? What do we drink? So if, if, if it's true that our default is drunkenness, cloudiness, grogginess, and we've got to drink a lot to become sober, what is it that we drink? Peter, if you have your, if you have your Bible, you can see this. I didn't put it on the sheet because we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. But Peter says just after this, two verses after the end of this passage, he says, like newborn infants, long thirst for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Get thirsty. Long for pure spiritual milk. I think it's the same idea when Paul says, get drunk not on wine but on the Spirit. Drink, drink, drink. He talks about the power of this word. What it can do to your insides and your outsides. How you live. At the end of, this, at the, end of the passage. This powerful, enduring word that God has spoken to you. In other words, what's this word? What's the pure spiritual milk? It's this word that was preached to you. In other words, it's the good news. In other words, the gospel. In other words, Peter breaks it down further. This, that you've been purified. We talked about it last week. The Bible is not one long treatise on how to clean yourself up. The Bible is one long treatise on how God cleans people up through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which is powerful enough and potent enough to clean even the worst of saints. This gospel that you have been made holy, that holiness is received, not achieved. So what if we don't wake up? What if we don't sober up? What if we don't drink, 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 drink so that we can sober up? What happens? We don't grow. Our growth is stunted. Because Peter says, drink this so that by drinking it, you may grow up. So if we don't drink this, what happens? We don't grow up. We still have the status and the calling of holiness. We're still that new beat cop. But we never grow into the role. We're still a rookie 20 years in, 30 years in. There's no sixth sense. There's no new intuitions. There's no second-natured kindness to people or patience with people or honorable speech about other people that aren't around in the room. It just feels like we're always tripping over ourselves even decades after walking with Jesus. We don't grow. Casey's been saying something in the girls' sexuality study on Thursday that I hear her uh, talk about in staff meeting or whatever else. She says, your behavior doesn't save you, but your behavior matters. And I think that's a good explainer of verse 17. Since we call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, or you might have a version that says, and if we call on him, him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time in exile or as a foreigner. He's saying, your behavior doesn't save you, but your behavior matters. 
Y'all know that, right? There's consequences to our actions, positively and negatively. That's why Peter says, long for pure spiritual milk and drink it, that we might sober up and wake up and become people, men and women who next year when we look in the mirror are a little bit quicker to hear over the, you're ugly, you're holy. Maybe next year we're a little bit more comfortable telling another guy, what's up, saint? And you're kind of joking, but it lands with him. And he's like, yeah, I am. And it begins to reinforce our identity to each other. If we don't drink this milk, if we don't wake up, if we don't sober up, how are we supposed to be ourselves? How do you be yourself on purpose when you don't know who you are? When we're fuzzy on who God's made us. This is the ignorance that Peter's talking about in verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not conform Or your version might say, don't slide back into old habits or old patterns of living, the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. He's saying when you didn't know any better, when your brain was shut off to God, shut off to who you are, shut off to your purpose in the world. Ignorance is a doorway back into the life you once lived. Cloudiness about just who I am in Jesus that I'm a saint, that I'm holy, that I'm clean, that I'm purified, that I'm a priest. Cloudiness in that is a doorway back into what Peter says God has ransomed you out of. Emptiness, an absurd life. An absurd life. A silly life. A meaningless life, an aimless life. A life that about a year after you've moved out of this life and you're dead and gone, people are kind of like, For what? How'd this person's life affect anybody else's life? How'd this person's life have a ripple in any anywhere? Ignorance is a doorway back into the way that we once lived, the life we once lived, the habits we used to not struggle to push away, but the habits that we embraced and thirsted for, the emptiness, the narcissism. Ray Ortland put it this way, we, we slide back into a life, even as Christians, we're pulled back towards this ignorance when we get cloudy, and we end up settling for a Christian life where, as he puts it, we ask Jesus to be the chaplain of our apathetic status quo. Wow. That hit me when I, when I heard that. Are we asking Jesus to be the chaplain of a mediocre status quo? the spiritual guru who every now and then comes and blesses a pretty mediocre existence. So ignorance leads to drunkenness and cloudiness about who we are, and it's dangerous always, and maybe maybe it's more dangerous now. Talk about a little bit of the exilic moment that we feel as Westerners. I don't think everyone in the world thinks this way, but we sure do. Alan Noble is a philosopher. He came out of Baylor, and he wrote this. He says, this is the fundamental lie of modernity. Here it is. That we are our own. The fundamental lie of our cultural moment in the West is that you're your own. 
You know how I've been talking about identity shapes your behavior? The identity that you are your own, you belong to you, leads to the behavior of you do you. You make up the truth as you go. He goes on, he says, but if you are not your own and belong to Jesus Christ, then the entire modern project of identity formation and identity expression is a sham. But let's think about the first part of that quote a little bit more before we, before we finish. To believe the lie. Actually, it's not a conscious belief. It's not like someone stopped you with a clipboard on campus and said, um, do you believe this proposition? And you're like, oh, yes, I believe it, or no, I don't believe it. It's, it's, it's in the water that you and I have been swimming in our entire lives, so we taste like this. It's in us. It's how we view the world. It's how we think about ourselves. It's the drunkenness that's around the whole culture. And it, he's, to believe the lie that you are your own isn't a walk in the sunset the way the culture wants you to believe that it is. Pretty much most commercials that are put out there, most advertisements that are put out there are really pushing this lie. You be you. Embrace your individuality kind of to an infinite degree. But if you believe the lie that you are your own, you are living in a life where you have to be God. You might not even believe in God. You might not even believe that there is a God. It doesn't matter. You have to fill the role of God. If you are not your own, sorry, if you are your own, you have to fulfill the role of a divine being. Here's what I mean. You have to figure out who you are. It's always been interesting, and I don't say this like mockingly, but when, when somebody says, um, I'm going out west to find myself, or I'm gonna go study abroad, they're kind of trying to find myself, the question that, that comes to mind is, when they get back, well, did you find yourself? The answer is never yes, because if you're the one who has to figure out who you are, the definition's always changing. Because you'll stamp yourself with this identity or this identity, and is, after a year or two, it's kind of growing old, and you're like, maybe this isn't it. Maybe the grass is greener on some other label, some other side. So it leads to an endless, lifelong, unsatisfied pursuit of trying to figure out the simplest thing. Who are you? Also, you have to, whenever you do find that identity, you've got to keep it propped up and you've got to protect it. And you've got to prove other people that that is legitimate, that it's valid, that it really is who you are. Because a lot of people, whatever weird, arbitrary thing that we, that we say, this is my identity, this is the feature of me or the attraction that I feel, and this is who I am now, a lot of time other people don't agree with that. And they're like, I don't buy that. And you feel attacked. You feel threatened. You feel the ground beneath you shake. And you might fight back and attack and say, well, you're narrow-minded, but you're feeling the earthquake of your own identity. Believing the lie that you are your own is not a walk in the sunset like you've been and I've been taught to believe. If that's the life that we're living in, you have to validate yourself. You have to justify yourself. You're always auditioning before other people and before God and before yourself that you matter, that you measure up, that your life's important, that you're going to make a real difference 
that you're not like everybody else. And that's exhausting. You have to figure out your purpose in life. And I'm not just talking about what you're going to major in or what job you're going to say yes to. The purpose of your existence. And you have to figure out how you're going to change. How are you going to change? Is there an app that can help me change? Is there a mindfulness exercise that can help me change? Is there a therapist that can help me change? And once they might help me make marginal growth, is there not something else that's going to come right back up that I'm going to want to change, that I'm going to know this isn't good in my life, I don't want it as a part of my life? That's on your shoulders to figure it all out. Believing the lie that you are your own is a death sentence, not freedom, not liberty. It leads to suffocating pressure, a life of anxiety, existential, soul-deep loneliness. And the statistics, do we need to get into the statistics? They prove it a thousand times over. Our generations, mine included, that have fancied ourselves the most liberated, the most autonomous in Western history, you've seen the stats. The math doesn't say we are. The math says the opposite. We're the worst, the lowest, the most struggling. We've believed a lie that cannot and never did and never can deliver what it's promised. But the second part of that quote is where the hope comes in because Alan Noble goes on to say this, but if you are not your own, if you belong to Jesus, then the entire, uh, if you belong to Jesus, there's, there's a whole new way. There's a whole other life for you. Peter uses a really critical word uh, in this passage. Verse 18 and 19, read with me. He says, for you know that it was not with perishable things like money that you were redeemed or ransomed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but you were redeemed or ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That word ransom or redeem. In other words, that word means bought back by another. God bought you. And he just didn't kind of like run around his pocket and see if he had any spare change for you. It was top shelf. It was a reach he had never made before. A payment he had never made before for anything else. Peter says, the precious blood of the Christ, of the Redeemer, the Ransomer. That's what he ransomed you with. That's how he made you his. And therefore, you and I, praise God, are not our own, but belong to another. There was a time when people didn't think the way that we think now. It's always good to read history to remember all the stuff that's taken as common sense now, 10 years ago, no one thought it was common sense. 10 years from now, nobody will think it's common sense. Especially if you go way back in time, in the 1500s, little German boys and German girls and German men and German women, every time that they went to church, and most of them did in that era, they would repeat in their churches what was called the Heidelberg Catechism. It was a teaching tool to try to teach Christians who they are, to try to teach them the gospel, to try to nurse them with spiritual milk. The question was, 
What is your only comfort in life and in death? You want to know what they wrote the answer as 500 years ago? This is where we end. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. And he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's the good life. God has ransomed you. You're holy. You belong to him. He has big plans for you. He respects you. He holds your calling and your life in high regard. And he's going to bless the world through you to the extent that you and I wake up and sober up by drinking, 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 drinking this pure spiritual milk, which is the gospel. Let's pray. Father, help us. Stick that bottle in our mouth and feed us like nursing infants. Um, That when we cry, when we feel hungry, when we feel confused or lost or convicted, or even feel tonight, man, it's been so long since I thought clearly about myself or God. Feed us that strength would return to our souls and our minds and our bodies. Feed us that we would grow. We want to be people who are useful, helpful tools in your hand. We want to help others. We want to love our neighbors. And we want to be at peace and confidence in your love for us. So help us. Pray this in your name.